Peace be with you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. And um, each year, the Sojourn family of congregations preaches through a shared sermon series we call Life Together. And the purpose of this series is to revisit our most fundamental hopes for life, for ministry, and for the city of Houston. Last week, we discussed the priority of presence, the priority of putting down roots in our neighborhood and serving our neighbors for the long haul. And today, we're going to discuss, we're going to explore a key characteristic of the redemptive presence we are called to have in our neighborhood. And that characteristic is hospitality. When Americans come face-to-face with poverty, it seems as though we move in one of two polarized directions. Either we assume that people are lazy or irresponsible and somehow deserve their poverty, or we renounce certain luxuries out of solidarity with the poor. And most of us live somewhere in the middle, which I think if we're being honest, probably requires a degree of cognitive dissonance. But the biblical Vision for hospitality reconciles the polarity. The Bible combines the joy of festivity with the denunciation of greed. The Bible combines guilt-free luxury with sacrificial care for the poor. How? How can we achieve both at the same time? Well, the Bible's solution is to feast to enjoy good food and good wine, the best and finest things of God's good creation, and to invite the poor. Luke 14, verse 12. This is Jesus speaking. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. In the realm of biblical ethics, hospitality plays a major role. It's a major theme. It's a theme that we can trace throughout the entire Bible. So we'll be looking at three different passages today. We've already read from 2 Samuel 9, but we're also going to be looking at Genesis chapter 18 and John chapter 6. But before we go there, we're going to begin in the beginning. In the opening chapters of Genesis, we see God forming and filling a beautiful and comfortable home for his people to inhabit. God invites Adam and Eve to feast in his presence. Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. So the story of creation is a story of God's gracious hospitality. In Genesis chapter 18, we see Abraham going way out of his way to welcome a group of strangers. He runs out to meet them. He pleads with them to stay. He has them rest under a tree. He feeds them bread, water, milk, and meat. And that story is purposefully juxtaposed with chapter 19, the very next chapter, which is all about the violent and rapacious inhospitality of Sodom. At the end of chapter 18, the result of Abraham's hospitality is fruitfulness and blessing. And at the end of chapter 19, the result of Sodom's inhospitality is judgment and destruction. And these stories were foundational to Israel's identity. The God of Israel was radically hospitable. 
The grandfather of Israel was radically hospitable. We ought to be radically hospitable. And that's exactly what the law required. The aliens and strangers living in the land of Israel were to be treated as native-born. The famous command to love your neighbor as yourself actually comes from the book of Leviticus and within the context of hospitality. Why were the people of Israel commanded to be hospitable? Again, because it was foundational to Israel's identity. The people of Israel were slaves in Egypt, poor and helpless, in need of provision and protection. They depended upon the hospitality of God to meet them in their need and to create a beautiful and comfortable home for them to inhabit. First, God provided food, clothing, and protection in the wilderness, and then He gave them a home where they would enjoy rest and peace and plenty. The story of the Exodus is a story of God's gracious hospitality. And so by the time we come to 2 Samuel, we should not be surprised to see King David exercising radical hospitality. Let me give some context to 2 Samuel 9. At this point in 2 Samuel, King Saul is dead, and David has just been anointed as king over Israel. David has brought peace to the land, and he begins to rule with justice and equity. Let's begin reading in verse 3. And David said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Okay, now Saul was the king of Israel prior to David, and Saul repeatedly tried to kill David, and yet David was best friends with Jonathan, one of Saul's sons. At this point, Saul and Jonathan are both dead. In fact, Saul's entire household has been destroyed. The last remaining member of Saul's household was the son of Jonathan and grandson of Saul. His name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the last remaining member of a fallen and destitute household, and he was crippled in his feet. He was poor, and he was helpless. However, from that place of poverty and helplessness, just as he was, Mephibosheth was summoned by the king. Verse 11, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons, and Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. In the ancient world, hospitality was practiced first and foremost for the needy the poor and the sojourner, the widow and the orphan. Hospitality was primarily for those who were disconnected or isolated, people who were in need of provision and protection. And the most powerful act of hospitality, the act with the, with the greatest symbolic significance, was the shared communal meal. To share food is to share life. Shared meals create intimacy and fellowship. And that's true of every culture in the world. That's a big reason why we want our neighborhood parishes to regularly share meals together. So instead of treating Mephibosheth like an enemy or a rival to the throne, David restores his inheritance and invites him to feast perpetually as a member of the royal household. David treats Mephibosheth like a son. 
Mephibosheth becomes an adopted son of the king of Israel. So, David restores his inheritance, David invites him to a perpetual feast, and David adopts him into the royal household. But this is, this is not just the kindness of David. David does not show the kindness of David. As we see in verse 3, David shows the kindness of God. David extends to his neighbor the same hospitality he received from God. The story of David is a story of God's gracious hospitality. That's precisely why Jesus spent his days eating and drinking with sinners. Jesus is the greater David, the king of Israel, but he is also God. He is the fountainhead of hospitality. Hospitality is essential to his nature, and hospitality is essential to the gospel. The story of the gospel is a story of God's gracious hospitality. Jesus restores our inheritance. Jesus invites us to a perpetual feast. And Jesus adopts us into the royal household. It's clear from the life and ministry of Jesus that hospitality was a priority. In fact, I think hospitality was his strategy for kingdom expansion. Jesus did a lot of eating and drinking in homes. And he told a lot of parables about banquets and feasts. Sometimes he assumed the role of guest. Sometimes he assumed the role of host. And, and sometimes, as with Zacchaeus, he simply invited himself over. In John chapter 2, at a wedding, Jesus assumes the role of both bridegroom and master of the feast. He turns water into wine to keep the party going. Time and time again, Jesus reveals himself to his disciples in the breaking of bread. And remember, these were tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was not whining and dining with the social elite. He was intentional about breaking bread with anyone and everyone, but especially the social outcast. John chapter 6 is another powerful demonstration of Jesus' hospitality. I'm going to read beginning in verse 4. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And this is a well-known story, but there are two things I want to point out. Number one, Jesus multiplies our humble offerings. Is hospitality really an effective strategy for kingdom expansion? Can the hospitality we practice in our homes actually make the world a better place? Yes. In fact, I, I don't think Christians should expect the world to change apart from practicing radical hospitality in our homes. It's that powerful. 
It's that central to God's character. It's that central to the Bible. It's that central to the ministry of Christ. Christian mission can really be as simple as Christian hospitality because Jesus is ready and willing to multiply our humble offerings. He says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. If you want to be blessed by God, if you want to extend His blessing to others, then open your home to your neighbors, especially to the social outcast. Charity is good, but hospitality is better. We shouldn't just give to the needy. We should share with the needy. Hospitality is about more than just sharing your stuff. It's about sharing yourself. That's precisely what the Bible's talking about when it talks about hospitality. Those who have much should give to those who have little, but the giving should be done in such a way that the rich and the poor share in it together. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Number two, I'm going to read verse 11 one more time. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. If that sounds familiar, that's because it's, the, it's nearly the exact same formula as the institution of the Lord's Supper. Luke 22, verse 19. And Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Under the surface, I think John chapter 6 is about the Lord's Supper. Every Sunday, Jesus assumes the role of host and he feeds us at his table. He is, this is the table of King Jesus, the greater David, and we are Mephibosheth. Jesus gives a feast. He invites the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. He invites the outcast and the sinner. He invites you and me. The Lord's Supper is more than divine charity. It's divine hospitality. The bread and the cup are the body and blood. Of Jesus. He is not just sharing his stuff, he's sharing himself. So, we must prioritize the Lord's Supper. We should avail ourselves of every opportunity to share a meal with King Jesus and to deepen our fellowship with one another. And when we, when we come to this table, let's remember that this is supposed to be a feast. I know it's just a little bit, but it's supposed to be a feast. This is not a somber, private act. This is not just between you and God. This is a communal feast, a Thanksgiving meal, and it's supposed to be marked by joy. And so I would discourage you from, from taking in the elements and going back to your seat and, and bowing your head and praying silently. Rather, lift up your eyes like Jesus in John 6 and take joy in the crowd. Take joy in the household of God. Greet one another. Maybe even smile a bit. Look around at your brothers and sisters and thank God for them, especially the ones who rub you the wrong way, especially them. Praise Him for the body and blood of Christ. Praise Him for restoring your inheritance. Praise Him for inviting you to a perpetual feast Praise Him for adopting you into the royal household, into His family. And then go, and then go and extend the hospitality of God 
to others. Go multiply the loaf. The radical hospitality of the Lord's Supper ought to be training us for radical hospitality in our homes, with our neighbors. Having feasted at the king's table, we should go home and share our own tables. Too often, when when Christians think about mission, we, we think about doctrinal formulas and evangelistic strategies and apologetic arguments. I really think it's more simple than that. If every Christian household in the Heights were to regularly feast with neighbors, especially the needy, we would not have to pray for evangelistic opportunities. We would not need to rethink and revise our missional strategies. It would really be as simple as sending an invite, cooking a meal, giving thanks, and enjoying a conversation. You don't have to have all the answers to every objection. There is a time and place for explaining and defending the gospel. But rather than explaining and defending the gospel, you can just say, come over. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He is a good and gentle shepherd. He is a meek and generous king. He invites you to his table. Evangelism is about welcoming all people to come and feast on the bread of heaven and the wine of the new covenant alongside brothers and sisters in the royal household of the king of kings. That's evangelism. Every Christian is a co-host with Christ. Many of us spend thousands upon thousands of dollars furnishing and decorating our homes, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Creating a beautiful and comfortable home can be a very godly It becomes a bad thing when we do not use the furnishings and decorations for biblical hospitality. Whether or not you have a well-furnished home, you you can use what you have to bless your neighbors. One of the beauties of the neighborhood parish is that we can work together to be hospitable. You may not have a home for hosting, but maybe you have a welcoming personality. Maybe you're a really good cook. Maybe your specialty is picking up drinks at the store. Every parish has one. Bottom line, we we can work together to lay out a feast and invite our neighbors and give thanks to God and eat, drink, and be merry. Is hospitality really an effective strategy for kingdom expansion? Can the hospitality we practice in our homes actually make the world a better place? Yes. Yes. I I really want us to believe that. And so to conclude, I I want to take one more look at Genesis chapter 18, where Abraham welcomes a few strangers. And there's one key detail in this story that I want us to see. In verse 6, Sarah, Abraham's wife, takes three seahs of fine flour and prepares a feast for their guests. Three seahs was an extravagant amount of flour, like a month's worth for three people. Abraham and Sarah practiced an extravagant form of hospitality. Now, let's jump to Luke chapter 13. This is Jesus speaking. To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. The word measures here is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word seah. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like the leaven that a woman kneaded into three seahs of flour. This is a very clear reference back to Genesis chapter 18. So, Jesus is telling us that the kingdom begins small, but grows and grows and grows over time. On the surface, that's a simple metaphor. But 
When we consider the story in Genesis 18, we realize that Jesus is describing the growth of the kingdom within the context of hospitality. The growth of the kingdom is a matter of kneading the leaven of the gospel into our neighborhood in the form of hospitality. And so, inhospitable church is a contradiction in terms. And really, hospitable church is redundant. The church is hospitable through and through, from top to bottom, beginning to end. Hospitality is essential to the nature of the church, and hospitality is fundamental to Christian faithfulness. Why? Because the church is sustained and centered upon the king's table. We are sustained and centered upon the hospitality of God. King Jesus is setting out a banquet for all people. He welcomes everyone into his kingdom, especially the Mephibosheths of the world, especially the poor and lame and lonely and disinherited. He summons us. He comforts us. He restores us. He calls us as adopted sons and daughters to feast at his table today and for all eternity. That is biblical hospitality. One more time. Luke 14, verse 12. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Listen, that's not a parable. That's our sermon application. That's the clear authoritative command of Jesus. That is a kingdom decree issued by the king himself. Step one, host a dinner. Step two, invite your neighbors, especially the poor, the homeless, the disabled, the refugee, the widow, the residents of a nursing home, the single mother, or the child in need of a family. In doing so, we will taste the kingdom come. And if that sounds foolish, good. That means we're on to something. And if you doubt whether it could actually work, I, I just dare you to try it. I understand the objections. The, those same objections are in my head and heart too. It's not safe to welcome strangers into my home. My neighbors will think it's weird. It's a recipe for incredibly awkward social situations, and so on. I'm not going to argue against those objections. I'm, I'm just going to invite you to join me in processing through them prayerfully, because the king has spoken, and he calls us to a life of gracious hospitality. So we should pray for help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your good world, and we lament the mess that we tend to make of it. We thank you for calling us into your household where, where we enjoy rest and peace and plenty in your presence. King Jesus, the greater David, thank you for restoring us and bringing us to your table. We feast with you. We feast upon you. We ask that you would sustain us. And Holy Spirit, overcome our obstinance and empower us to extend the kindness of God to our neighbors. Please. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.